0: books that have shaped us on Scribble.
1: Welcome to Scribble. 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee.
0: And I'm Don Wooten. We'll look back on the books that have affected our lives on Scribble. I think books do affect your life if if you're a reader. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Uh,
0: I'm uh, I think my column this week is going to be on the uh, the the adverse effect of media, oh. uh, you know, from movies all the way down to the little screen.
1: Kind of not letting you visualize your characters yeah. and your Action and all the rest of it.
0: That's a nice thing. Uh, Radio is close to books. Mm -hmm. In books, you have to shape thoughts and so on. You construct scenes. And in radio, I imagine people are visualizing what the heck we look like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's
0: right. I think, uh, let's see, Paul Newman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, they don't know, do they?
0: (laughs) But uh, Um, when did you start reading?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, I took this project, when you brought this up, very, I mean, I got just lost in sort of going back through time, because I, I was thinking, if they shape us, yes, they shape us as adults, but my sort of earliest memory of being read to, and then learning to read, and um was the books that I was drawn to, yeah, it It either shapes us or it tells us something before we even know what it's telling us about the people we are going to become. Because one of the things when I went back through this list, I just thought, oh, there's all kinds of things in here that make sense, (laughs) you know, given – who I've turned into since then, but you know why you're drawn <laughs> to what you're drawn to.
0: Um, I think it'd be a brave person who knew you when you were young. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: well, it was only my parents reading to me, but I was thinking of the earliest stories I remembered, and one of the things—I'm not sure I remember it or if they've told me stories about it—but my dad was in. He was in grad school at Stanford studying Victorian lit and teaching. And so he was revisiting Beowulf and apparently they read that to me and I memorized big portions of it and acted it out. <laughs> and and I would sort of think, is that really what you should be reading to your two year old? You know so <laughs> well, <I'm sure> they
0: <laughs> I don't know, but that is that's an interesting first book, I must say. It,
1: well, I don't know if it was the first first, but <laughs> it was one of the first where they just said, oh, you just loved it. You memorized it. You acted out, wealthy you know. And <laughs> <just>. <laughs> But what I remember, of course, is like nursery rhymes and fairy tales and that from the very beginning, you oh, know, yeah. just being mesmerized. And then... Um, Beatrix Potter, everything Beatrix Potter wrote of the kids' books, you know, yeah. um, not Peter Rabbit so much, but I remember loving Jemima Puddle Duck, you know, the tale of Jemima Puddle Duck and <laughs> um, Mrs. Tiggywinkle, you know. And for with those, I think it was because of the drawings as well as the stories, and I was young enough that little critters, you know, cats and mice and all of that um, – were really really compelling.
0: Okay, uh, well, my first book is not that interesting, I don't think, but it was significant. Uh, I mentioned before, my my older sister gave me two books, cost fifty cents apiece. This is back when you can get into the movies for eleven cents, uh, so it's big present. But yeah. I I thought it was dumb. <laughs> there are only three pictures in the whole darn book. <laughs> yes. And bored with the other toys, I finally sat down at Christmas in the first grade and started reading Jerry Todd and the Whispering Mummy. And I was gone. You were just hooked. I mean, yeah. from then on, books were it. Yeah. And I la- I read every book in that series. My sister gave me two at Christmas, and then at my birthday, and then again until again, I yep. got them all. Yeah. And <clears throat> I, I learned that... Uh, the guy who wrote it, Edward Edison Lee, uh, lived in a place, a town called Shelby for a while, and he was a scoutmaster, and he knew these three 14-year-old guys. The family names were uh, Shaw, uh, Ellery, and uh, Myers. Ellery became a prominent doctor later on, but he kept their last names and gave them new first names uh-huh. and added a character called Jerry Todd and he told their stories okay and these had such an impact that when uh, and they were so well known that when uh, Ronald Reagan wrote his autobiography in 1965 he said he lived a life like Jerry Todd oh he so uh, when they reissued that for his campaign in 1980 they figured nobody knows who this guy yes. is so they made it Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn <laughs> oh interesting isn't yeah.
1: that uh, yeah and that, he
0: lived in Tutter Illinois on the Illinois canal and I have looked through maps trying to find, trying to find where it. that might have been ah.
1: <laughs> yeah it's that makes me think of um I had an older cousin who introduced me to the first Nancy Drew books you know uh-huh. and Nancy drew oh you know? yeah
0: I read those <laughs> oh my
1: goodness I I was probably an early teen at that point, but you know the secret of the old clock and the all those t- I just was mesmerized by it. and my parents used those to coerce me to do things like practice piano and if I would practice piano they'd give me a new Nancy uh-huh. Drew book to read um, but that was later. Um, Not that much later. Well, you
0: know, the Hardy Boys, Bobbsey Twins, Tom Swift, all those things. Yeah. I just ate those up.
1: I know. Do you remember, I don't know what years it would have been, there was a series called The Boxcar Children?
0: No, I don't know that.
1: That was, um, I think, I think it was multiple writers, kind of like the Nancy Drew books where there were different people writing at different times. Always under some pen name, um, but the first books in that it was I think four siblings, and I don't remember why they weren't with their parents anymore. But they lived in a boxcar in the woods that they found, and they figured out how to make money and how to. I it was just one of these kind of adventure things that caught my. Imagination makes me
0: think of the four kids who survived alone 40 days. Oh, my goodness. Isn't Isn't that that, stunning?
1: I know. I know. Well, I remember when they first were missing that the person who was reporting on the story said, well, their mother said that they know how to feed themselves and how to take care of themselves. And, um,
0: and In the jungle, yeah, and they did. And they
1: did, yeah.
0: <laughs> they knew what berries to eat yeah. and all that. Isn't that just... Astounding.
1: Well, I think there is something for kids, too, about imagining that you could, I don't know if it's playing house, but that you could survive, that you could take care of each other, that you could um make it on your own, I suppose, that made books like like the boxcar kids.
0: And although you live in those things, you learn (laughs) that that's not quite true. Exactly. I I put on a cape and jumped off the garage roof, (laughs) I could not fly. (laughs) Yep,
1: yep. We have those moments, don't we?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, moving along through high school and so Uh on, when I got to the seminary, one of the books that had a profound impact on me was *The Great Divorce* by C.S. Lewis. Okay. C.S. Lewis wrote all kinds of great books on religion. Yep, he had the Space Trilogy, uh, *Out of the Out of the Silent Planet*, *Perelandra*, and that hideous strength. Yeah, about life on Mars. Yeah. Venus and the Earth, yeah. and how each the god of each one was actually a sub god of the main god. Yeah. And I thought, isn't this heresy? But isn't it interesting?
1: <laughs> well, and wasn't he was an atheist for the first thirty years of his life? I yeah. think um, that's always fascinated me too. That you know he he would have been um, because of the Chronicles of Narnia. He would have been sort of my early teens. I was fascinated with that and I wanted to walk through the back of my wardrobe and be somewhere else Um but then all those decades later when Michael died it was his book A Grief Observed which is oh, kind of yeah. of his journals I think right didn't they didn't they put together no uh, I think no, it was he, a book he wrote that. based on yeah. yeah 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 losing his wife and that That fascinated me. I thought, here I am reading him again, and he's helping me again. You know, whatever, (laughs) whatever, however he helped me as a, you know, twelve-year-old. Suddenly, there I was, so Uh, grateful for that. What
0: other books moved you through early? early Oh, let's
1: see. What else have I got? Um, Watership Down was another one. Like when I was twelve, that really got under my skin, and I. Maybe that's, again, the animal thing of Beatrix Potter, you know. But, <laughs> but you know, they were dealing with suicide and, and, you know, it was a bunch of rabbits and they were horrible, you know, the violence. I think that one was banned from certain schools because of the violence in it. Um, but, yeah, I was fascinated by Watership Down, I think that came out in the early 70s. So, But then if I look at, like, my later teens— I just read what was on my parents' bookshelves because my dad was an English professor and my mom was a poet. And so I was reading things like The Scarlet Letter and Tess of the D'Urbervilles when I was still in high school and just because, you know, just because there they were. So I missed a lot (laughs) that was going on in them. But that really also got under my skin. I realized that I sort of move toward people writing about women's issues. You know, if you think of the Scarlet Letter and you think of what happened to Tess and Tess of the D'Urbervilles, but that men were writing those books was really important to me,
0: I we think. We didn't have books in our home. I, le- I leaned on the library. Oh, uh, yeah. But my habit was every time I had a question, I went to the library mm-hmm. and got books and, and read about it. things up, yeah. A kid showed up in a backyard one day with a green snake. He was holding it in his hand, I was fascinated and frightened. Yeah, yeah. And he said, touch it. So I said, no, it's slimy. He said, no, it isn't. So I touched it. It was like fine leather, and yeah. I thought, what is this? Yeah. So to the library I went, it's and like I read dog. everything Raymond L. Ditmar's ever wrote, and I became so fascinated by snakes. Oh, sure. That I decided when I got in college, I would concentrate a little bit on herpetology.
1: Oh, I
0: never got over my fear of snakes. Right, but I used to go snake hunting and bring them back and yeah. Yep. So on it was. But uh, Raymond L Dittmar's was big for me. And when I stumbled on opera in the seventh grade, the Victor Book of the Opera.
1: Oh, that's the seventh grade. I
0: bored my family to death. <laughs> I'd get music <laughs> and I'd hit the, play at the piano and sing these arias. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, was, it must have been dreadful.
1: <laughs> well, no, because parents are delighted by you know the things that inspire their kids or light their kids up. That's always been true, hasn't it? That's always true.
0: Well, opera, I think, is for adolescence anyway. Yeah. High emotion, frustrated yep. love, and so yep. on. It goes right along with puberty. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And those were some of, if I'm looking at sort of my later teens, it was Romeo and Juliet, and it was Hamlet, and it was, you know, these very complicated f- sort of family relationships. and um You know, blind spots and missteps and tragedy and, um, yeah, yeah, The the Awakening. Have you ever read that one by Kate Chopin? The Awakening was—that one, I guess, was vilified and burned when it was published. But it's basically a woman in the South, fairly well-to-do, who isn't really in love with being a mom. So— She wants to be an artist, and it was so scandalous at the time that she would leave her nice husband and, and her kids. And
0: Isn't it amazing what used to be scandalous? Now it's becoming scandalous again. Oh, yes. I, uh, uh, reinvented Puritanism. I yeah, can, yeah. I can't stand it.
1: I know, I know.
0: It's. Let me tell you about a book. When I got out of college, I went to work in Muscatine, Just for about five or six months. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my life, I was really alone in the evening. I had a room in a house. Yeah. And when I went there, that was it. And I took with me a little book by Charles Piggy, P-E-G-U-Y. He's a French journalist and poet, part of a group that included Henri Gayon that got interested in religion even though some of them started out as atheists. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this book, God Speaks. And when I was down there, I would read this one poem every night before going to bed and then go right to sleep. I want to read you a little bit of this.
1: Can you read the whole thing or is it long?
0: Oh, God, it would take the program.
1: Okay. (laughs) All right.
0: I'm talking about the, and it was like Sufi poetry. Mm -hmm. the lines just change a little bit as you go along, and it keeps repeating and so on. I'm talking about those who work and who don't sleep. I pity them. I'm talking about those who work and who thus, in doing this, are following my commandment, poor children, and who, on the other hand, don't have the courage, don't have the confidence, don't sleep. I pity them. I hold it against them a bit. (laughs) They don't trust me. As a child lays innocently in his mother's arms, thus do they not lay innocently in the arms of my providence. They have the courage to work. They don't have the courage to do nothing. They possess the virtue of work. They don't possess the virtue of doing nothing, of relaxing, of resting, of sleeping. They look after their affairs well during the day, but they don't want to give them to me to look after during the night. As if I weren't capable of looking after them for one night. Uh-huh. It's great stuff. It just goes on and on. Yeah, on.
1: that's I've never heard of that. I would
0: read that every night. And one of the one of the poems is a beautiful thing where God talks about the beauties of the world, the hills and vales of France, and they are more beautiful than anything. But he says the thing he likes most is a child going to sleep while they're saying his prayers and confusing as our father with the Hail Mary, oh, he said, yeah. "There's nothing so funny, and therefore <laughs> nothing so beautiful <laughs> as a child going to sleep." Well, I thought I, that was marvelous.
1: <laughs> I so I'm kind of fascinated by people, and I'm one of them too, who f- who have forever fallen asleep reading, because we're told now that you should not be doing that because it keeps your head. Clicking along, and so you don't sleep enough. And that's certainly been true of my whole family. We, uh, yeah,
0: I think. We, sh- shutting your brain off is hard.
1: It's hard. And if you're reading and you're in those worlds and if you're thinking, um, yeah, it's pretty hard to just roll over and fall asleep. Um, so that's interesting because of most of the writers I know, they're all insomniacs late night. Writers and readers.
0: Uh, 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 Go through the other list of books you've read that interested you.
1: Well, so when I got to sort of college and after, the books that that came to mind first were, I guess, I would have to say Virginia Woolf's um, A Room of One's Own, and then... um, to the Lighthouse. Those both just blew me away. I and they were so different. One was the series of lectures that turned into a room of one's own, but then to the Lighthouse was this modernist. I I've just it was one of those books where when I finished I was just breathless, just could hardly yeah hardly function. Um, and that's probably when I started reading poetry more deliberately too. So Plath's Ariel, and Carolyn Forche's Country Between Us, which I've mentioned many times because that certainly shaped me. I went off and wanted to study with her. And then she she was very busy, so she made me teach some of her classes. <laughs> and she was famous at that point. And I, well, there was one day where she said, I have to be gone for three days. They're just undergraduates. You know more than they do. And I was looking at her going, I can't. Teach a class, you know. It just <laughs> you found out
0: you could. I
1: came out of that room going, "Oh, that was fantastic!" You know that, and yeah, kind of the me- the message of. Yeah, you don't know everything, but you know more than they do, and so...
0: Well, that's the trick to keep ahead of the students. Exactly, exactly. When I was teaching high school, I read furiously before every class. I wanted to be absolutely sure I had everything in hand, because I was a biologist and I was teaching English. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yep, I know.
0: I think I read more when I was working, what, six hours at Allman, and then eight hours at WHBF. Oh. And yet, I was reading, reading all it. the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and even things that I've read dozens of times, I, re- I want to reread them so they're kind of fresh in my head because I notice different things. So it didn't really help me to teach the same class, <laughs> you know, the next term, because I was still rereading everything.
0: You know... Uh, I, the fiction I read most of all was detective stories. I went through the Southern California hardboiled detectives by Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, mm. and the, the crown jewel of them all, Ross McDonald. His detective stories rose to a different level. They're huh. really good. And uh, then later on, I kind of dropped out, but then picked up a series of uh, by Peter Robinson of a detective Uh, His name escapes me, but he uh, worked up around New York. And he turned out a book every year, so I read them. And uh, I finally, after several years of that, I just kind of dropped it. I don't know. Hmm. I didn't read the last ones. Because nonfiction moved into my life in a big way. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking how kind of what we've been discussing. It's kind of fiction when you're a little kid, imagination and fiction and animals and all of that. And then what? I guess then it starts to be people and relationships and what's going on there. But by the time I was in college and I was realizing that I didn't just want to read, I wanted to know how the writers did what they did. And then you start paying attention to essays and, you know, creative yeah. nonfiction, I guess we call call it now. And that's when I got interested in Annie Dillard, you know, the Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I don't know if mm-hmm. you know that, but that's a series of essays. And she's a naturalist. And she she would write about the most incredible, ordinary things and then go research and add the research. in. And I didn't know exactly what I was reading at the time but I was really mesmerized and Wendell Berry you know Wendell Berry was always writing about the land and landscape and how to preserve the planet way ahead of his time and so yeah it was I mean that's part of what interested me about doing this mm-hmm. like I said at the start was sort of like yeah.
0: huh the, single, the book that had the single largest impact on my life was uh, something I mentioned before the Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind oh, yeah. by Julian Jaynes. I had read William Prescott's History of the Conquest of Mexico. Yeah, and that is an amazing thing. William Hickling uh, Prescott. His eyesight was so bad; sometimes he couldn't read. And he, but he was the first scientific historian. Okay. He dealt with the with the original documents, and he wrote a history of Mexico that was not superseded, if it has ever been, huh. but it was the basic work for a long time. But I thought, how could the Aztecs have folded before the Spaniards like that? Mm. But then, in the origin of consciousness, Julian Jane sets down a theory that explained almost everything I'd ever wondered about, uh-huh. about being conscious
1: sure. and
0: how people have changed over time. And he posited that in the beginning, when people got organized, they were bicameral. Their right brain spoke up, said things to them, and could even have them see things. Yeah. And they worked under that. But then as the evolution continued in Greece and then later on, all of a sudden consciousness really began to blossom. And he used the Iliad and the Odyssey uh-huh. as examples the Iliad is a pre conscious story mm-hmm. where the gods are active everywhere. Sure. The Odyssey is a book about a guy full of tricks who says one thing and does another and, does something else. and is fully conscious. Uh-huh. Interesting thesis, and I was just blown away by it.
1: Say the title again. It's a long one, right? The Origin of Consciousness
0: In the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Okay. And it's Julian Jaynes, J A Y N E S. Okay. Sapiens by Harari and Metazoa: The Birth of Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey-Smith. That's a very interesting too. And Entangle Life: How Fungi.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Fungi seem to be as smart as we are.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just read today. Um, I get a, a segment on the computer every morning called Nice News, where they tell you lovely things that are going on in the world. And one of them was that they've got a kind of fungi that they think will be able to eat plastic. Yeah. And I just thought that that would solve a lot if they really, if they can do that.
0: The guy who wrote that, uh, Merlin Sheldrake, what a great first name. Uh Uh-huh. He just put water on his book and... Mushrooms grew. Oh. Then he shredded it all and made wine out of his book. Oh my. <laughs> I mean, oh the guy just, <laughs> a fungi can do anything. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you, They seem to think. Uh-huh. And the whole business of consciousness has puzzled me because we don't know what life is. Yeah. And we see it express itself in various ways, some damaging, some positive. And you think, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing.
1: <laughs> well, that's one I will get my hands on this summer because I want to. It sounds fabulous.
0: Um, you got a minute for one more book.
1: Oh, I can. Well, one more that moved me a lot when I discovered it probably, I don't know, 20 years ago. is just The title's just Dakota, and it's by Kathleen Norris. And she was a writer in New York City whose family farm... When the parents or grandparents died, she and her husband went to Lemon, Lemon, South Dakota, I think, to sell the farm off. And she got so mesmerized by the landscape and the people of this tiny, tiny little town that they never left. She, they never went back to New York City, at least in the time of the book. Now, who knows? Maybe they've gone back since then. <laughs> but it's beautiful. They're meditations about people and place.
0: Yeah, there's so many good books. I'm waiting for volume four of Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, probably the best biography I've ever read. Uh But the fourth part, I think, I'm afraid the guy's going to die before he finishes (sighs) it. Oh, no. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's fun to natter on like this, but uh, time moves on, and so we must too. And as a matter of fact, we're moving to our very last broadcast next week. So... We just took a little time today to talk about stuff that we like. Yeah. And uh, we'll get, I don't know that we'll do any better next week. <laughs> oh. But we hope you'll join us for the final edition of Scribble. <laughs>